Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for September 16th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And good morning, Tiff Shifflett. Uh, good morning, sir. Yes, I think I was getting ahead of myself. We are recording in the morning a little early for people to listen to us as a podcast, which I think most people do. You don't see a big difference, although it popped up in your feed early. But we're excited about our guest tonight, or today, um, for the second time joining us from University of West Georgia, Daniel K. Williams. He's written, um, I think, three more articles since we've had him on the show, but he just recently wrote one on how religious attendance affects uh, political participation in that area. Fascinating article talking about the two topics that you're not supposed to discuss, religion and politics, and, of course, we'll discuss them. Uh, today on the show, but until then, there's been a lot of political news, really too much to cover, but we're going to start out with the um, retirement of Mitt Romney. Now, it, it, one of the craziest things turns for politics, in 2012, Mitt Romney was the Republican nominee. Democrats were you know, steadfast against uh, Mitt Romney being elected, wanted to reelect um, Barack Obama. And Republicans, that was their standard bearer. They wanted to see him become president. Fast forward 11 years after one term in the Senate from Utah, Mitt Romney is retiring, and Republicans seem to be happy to see him go. And Democrats are the ones that are saying, well, we kind of wish he'd stay another term. Um, Catherine, 11 years ago, do you think we'd be here? No, no. But, you know. A lot has happened in 11 years with uh, our former president and, you know, all kinds of things. But, um, you know, uh, the thing about Mitt Romney, even when he was running for president, he had his gaps and his, you know, I, you know, I don't agree with him on, on, with him on many things. But he was he's always been a pretty stand-up guy, for, for, you know, lack of a better term. So... I can understand why uh, Democrats are disappointed that he won't be running again because you know they're going to run some whack job to take his place, and and we'll probably successfully achieve that because of the way that the state of the GOP. But I, I mean, I sort of admire him for like just being like, <laughs> like I can't take this anymore. Whatever. Yeah, um, Tim Mitt Romney. Uh, quite, we. I, I kind of assume this is the end of his, you know, elective office political career. He, I guess, was born and raised in Michigan, served as governor of Massachusetts, and then finished his career seemingly as governor of Utah, all over the country. Um, how, how surprised were you that he didn't uh, continue on? Uh, 
Uh, this comes as no surprise at all. Yeah. First of all, he he's 76 years old. He even mentioned his age is one of the major reasons for his decision. I, I personally don't think he's leaving because he feels his chances of re-election are almost non-existent. Uh, Catherine mentioned some whack job. Well, they're already lining up. The Utah State House Speaker, um, Brad Wilson's raising money to run against him. And a couple of Trumpsters are already in the race. That should be fun. And then, you know, we've talked about this before. Uh, Utah has this funny system that I don't think Romney could survive, guys. They, they, yeah, I mean, you got to run in the primary, but before you do that in Utah, you've got to face the Utah uh, State Republican Party membership in a state convention where they ha- hold a vote uh, to decide if you should even be the nominee and you can still run but uh, uh, but you're running against a de facto nominee in the primary and you'd, you'd lose and um it, it it was you know we're we're gonna lose all the moderates in in the republican party i mean he's one of the last ones so uh i i'm i'm with catherine again on that too i hate to see him go yeah, um, I guess this kind of harkens back to several years ago in Utah when Bob Bennett ran for re-election and lost in that primary system the, the nomination to mm-hmm. Mike Lee, which we know is one of the most right-wing members, most strident, um, you know, and not even conservative, but just so um, obstinate and unwilling to work with other folks, members of the um, Senate. And so you have to wonder, you know, did, did Mitt Romney see this is going to be just like what happened to Bob Bennett and why go through this? I think it is. Tim, and I'll tell you this, I didn't even realize he was 76. That really is another thing that kind of shows that age is really just a number. It varies from person to person because Mitt Romney looks so much younger at 76 than Donald Trump or Jim Justice look at 77. And Jim Justice is the eyes-on favorite to become a rookie senator um, if he wins in, in um, West Virginia. So age is kind of a um, weird dynamic there. Um, so, so yeah, and this is really – I think this is really interesting about Utah. It's, it's funny, like that one area of Utah with Salt Lake City almost elected what might have been the most progressive or moderate, probably a better term, moderate member of the um, Republicans in the House. Had she won, she didn't, but she narrowly lost. Had actually said she didn't vote for um, Donald Trump in 2020. But then as a whole, the state, um, you know, elected Michael Lee is about to turn out Mitt Romney. The state at first said, you know, we really don't like Donald Trump's politics. It's personal, um, the way he goes about things. But now they seem to be settling in and they're accepting of him so much more. Um, Catherine, what what do you think this says about Utah and where it's moving from one kind of republicanism to another? I think I think uh Utah is sort of up in the air. You know, there's some there's Salt Lake City which is, you know, a little bit more moderate. 
But then I'm sure, I, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I'm sure the outer parts are much more conservative. So I think it's going to be all about voter turnout and um, messaging in terms of, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say they're purple, but, in, in, you know, there's, there's opportunity, but will we be able to take advantage of it? Yeah, Tim, um, I really think the opportunity in 2016 seemed like it's possible, but since then it really seemed to slip away from us, and this is just another indication. Uh, what's your take? Well, I mean, let, let's understand one thing. First of all, Utah is a pretty Republican state, pretty very reliable. They haven't voted Democratic in the presidential election since, you know, 1964, when, like, the whole country voted Democratic <laughs> that year. Uh, and and another thing you got to be in Utah is, of course, a, a, a Mormon, or you're really nothing in politics, to be honest, out there. Um, but even a guy like Mitt Romney uh, is, is losing out to this populist nonsense of, of of a guy like Trump. I mean, he set about to take over the state parties, you, you know, in every, every state that, that he could. And, and, of course, he's he's pretty much managed to to do that in, in, in Utah anyway. At least he's got enough people in place out there that a guy like Romney is just not going to survive and and utah republicans are are not happy with him because he voted twice to impeach uh trump and uh the the republican party uh just forget about state lines guys the republican party belongs to donald trump right now we've talked about this we know this and utah's really uh no 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 exception even though they might give him five or ten percent less of the vote it, it's still a guy like romney just ain't gonna be able to get elected out there right now yeah and i think you know once again the the, the senate in utah at least will move a bit to the right on this um two more quick things uh let's talk about the future of mitt romney i will actually say, kind of make my prediction i think mitt romney may end up becoming you know, that next big Republican that goes on possibly MSNBC, CNN, could even be the, the um, big problem for Fox. I kind of doubt that last one. And ends up being like Matthew Dow, Joe Scarborough, um, Joe Walsh, uh, so many others that were Republicans and then now speak out against the mo- uh, modern Republican Party and just becomes a big thorn in their side. Um, although I, I do wonder how much impact these folks have compared, and Mitt Romney will have compared to what they might have used to. Catherine, what do you think Mitt Romney does from here? I don't think he'll be um, uh, super critical of the Republican Party. I think he'll try to be, a, you know, like in that no label kind of uh, uh critic without being uh mean or uh i mean i think he'll be he'll talk about good government and he'll talk about uh policy more than he'll talk about about more than he'll criticize the current gop i just don't think he's got it in him i think he's more 
um, interested in government, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up being an ambassador or something. I just don't think he'll be yeah. a, a, a a loudspeaker in critic in criticism of the party. But but in an ambassador, you, I was, I'm assuming you mean in a second Biden term, not in a second Trump term. Right. Yes. Which because and that kind of lends itself to that you know crossover appeal, kind of you know saying I'm not the old Republicanist, uh, you know, the Republican Party of today, I should say. Um, go even, ahead. Uh, he could even yeah. end up. He could even end up being in some cabinet position in a second Biden term. Some, you mm-hmm. know, Secretary of Interior or something like that. I don't know. He might be too yes. old for that. I, uh, well, well. Once again, this is this would be an administration that can't that, that can't really say you're too old. Um, so that would have that in its favor. Tim, your your predictions for Mitt Romney for the future. Well, first thing he's going to do for a little while, you know, he's got this book coming out, and that is where a lot of this stuff we're hearing about what happened on, you know, January 6th and what he thinks of this senator and that senator and what this one and that one said to him. Y'all read some of that this week. He's going to make the rounds for a while, and I have a very strong feeling that CNN and MSNBC and maybe like the Today Show and things like that. That's where we're going to see Mitt Romney for quite a little while. After that, he's talking about trying to build up uh, like young voters in the Republican Party. I don't know how a seventy-six-year-old ex-senator does that, but that's what he—that's what he's talking about doing, uh, building building up young and new voters in the Republican Party to. Keep them from being irrelevant. Yeah, um, let, let me get back in here a little closer. Um, and Tim, you mentioned the book, and that was my name. And I said there's two things I mentioned. That is, the, oh, that was the second thing I was going to mention was that the the book and McKay Coffins is, I guess, it's publishing this fall. And my understanding is Mitt Romney gave him complete access, just turned over his email account, gave him all of his private letters and said, just write a story about my life with no filter. I'm not hiding things. I mean, maybe there's something he's hiding, and I don't want to get into that. He's talking about hiding nothing in his public, professional, political business life. Um, and people are really astounded by that. And I think once Paul got to see, like, hey, he's, are you really willing to do this? And he was willing to do that. It was kind of admirable because it's going to be one of the most – True pictures of a living politician in um, in history. Um, Catherine, do you think the book coming out had any influence in his decision? Um, I don't know. I I, I I think the decision was more about you know he can't get elected, so he's you know he saw the writing on the wall. But perhaps the book, perhaps. Just the fact of the book, it was something for him to, to uh, you know, tour about and talk about and, so, and something that would take his time. And so this was a good, a good time, a, a good reason to not run again. But I think he saw the writing on the wall and knew he couldn't win. David, are you with us? Yes. Hey, Tim, I'm back. I was doing my... Uh-oh. I'm the producer as well as the, the host. I should be back now. 
Am I? You are. Like where yep. you are now. You are. Good. I was doing my, I was doing my duties in addition to my host duties, um, and, and so I won't get behind the curtain and talk too much about that, but I, I was I was still in that role, and I was hoping that I could get back before Catherine's point was finished. Right now, I'm excited to welcome back into the Kudzu Vine for the second time from University of West Georgia, Dr. Daniel K. Williams. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Well, hello. Good to uh, talk with you again. Yes. Well, I, I tell you what, um, you are uh, one of the people that is willing to discuss both religion and politics um, in public. How did you um, find this area <laughs> where you, you know, write and speak on the intersection of these two, um, you know, seemingly highly controversial issues in polite company? Right. Well, and I think there's actually a lot of interest uh, in that, despite uh, the prevailing taboo, I suppose. Um, it started in graduate school as a personal interest because uh, I came from a, a background of Christian faith, but in graduate school, I began to realize that not all Christians who read the same Bible had the same political commitments, in particular, African Americans and white evangelical Protestants often came at political issues from opposing perspectives, uh, despite so many shared beliefs uh, when it came to religion. And so that intrigued me, and I, I started studying this uh, as a dissertation project, and that developed into my first book, uh, God's Own Party. Uh, and from then, I just continued to look into various areas where religion and, and politics uh, seemed to, to create uh, interesting movements uh, in the modern United States. Yes. Well, we know that you've written multiple times for The Atlantic, and the latest piece was, I found so fascinating, and that's why I had to get you on the show. I guess there were several key findings. You can begin to tell us about those, but one of the key findings was less people are going to church but in a lot of areas, the politics is actually moving right, even though our assumption is, is if people go to church more, the area would stay Republican, but full stop going to church as much, the area would move more towards the middle or towards the left. This is counterintuitive maybe to our gut assumptions. Tell us the findings and, and why that might be. Yeah, um, this started, I guess, about a year and a half ago when I began – doing some research uh, in the uh, general social survey that uh, is given every few years in the United States. And so we have this excellent uh, data bank of uh, responses, survey responses on political, uh, religious, and cultural questions going back uh, about 50 years. And what I noticed in that uh, data set is that people in the South uh, who are white uh, and who go to ch church no more than once a year but, but still call themselves Protestant Christians are remarkably politically conservative. In fact, on some questions, they, they seem to be even further to the right uh, than people who are churched. And so uh, I began investigating that further, and more recently there's a, a book that's getting a lot of press um, by Michael Graham and, and Jim Davis called The Great Dechurching that seems to, to confirm this, uh, and the political scientist uh, Ryan Burge, uh, who, who's been a leader in, in studying the religious nuns, that is, people who have no religion, uh, also came out with an article um, this month noting that, that uh, former President Trump's uh, support seems to be coming unusually 
uh, strongly from people who are uh, who are unchurched. Uh, so there are a lot of different findings that that various uh, political scientists and social science researchers have have corroborated um, that that seem to correspond with some of my um, initial observations from a historical angle that uh, when people leave church, they don't necessarily leave their political commitments behind. Some people do, of course, but especially in conservative rural areas of the country, people who leave evangelical Protestant churches are likely to remain politically conservative, perhaps even becoming more extremely conservative, even after they leave church. Yes, that's interesting findings, although it may be kind of a a finding that some churches might actually want to share because it's like, hey, it's not us that are the ones that are almost making Trump into a deity. Um, That's folks that stop coming. Um, Well, let me ask you kind of the flip side of this because this is something I don't think is discussed as much. Okay, churches have declining attendance, which is obviously a negative for churches and, and People will say, hey, it's a negative in other, other parts of society and that kind of thing. But if churches started to look at the political side of things and, say, and some churches say, we really are not that um, strident in you know, political conservative beliefs, what if we created church, a church environment that was more friendly to people on the other side of the aisle, which make up you know, probably over 50% of the American landscape and create a church that talked about Jesus' gospel where he did works for other people, not judged other people. And then have they done that, and has that increased church attendance in any way? Well, there are a lot of churches doing that. In fact, uh, I think in the majority of, of churches, politics are rarely discussed directly from the pulpit. There are, of course, obvious exceptions to that, but... Uh, in a typical church, uh, you will not find a, a direct partisan sermon very often. And yet there's a political culture that's created through churches that, that moves through informal networks. And that has perhaps had a much stronger influence on the creation of, of the Christian right over the last few decades than direct political pronouncements from the pulpit. Um, but also corresponding to this, there are churches that have a an informal network that tends to to be a little more politically moderate or even uh, politically to the left of center. Uh, in general, I would say over the last few decades, the churches that have been known more for uh, political moderation or even uh, left of center politics uh, have not necessarily been gaining members. So one can think of some mainline Protestant denominations, uh, the Episcopal Church, the United Methodist Church, which is currently um, undergoing a, a bit of a schism, uh, and the United Church of Christ, uh, which is maybe more popular in the North than in the South, though there are some UCC churches in urban areas uh, in the South, such as Atlanta. Um, all of those churches, as well as other denominations that I could mention, have tended to be uh, politically moderate, and in the case of the UCC, even politically left of center, but they haven't necessarily been gaining um, members. In fact, the, the opposite has been true over the last few decades. So that's been a struggle for churches. There is a, I think there is a demographic market out there for uh, political moderation, uh, even theological uh, moderation, and maybe even a progressive 
uh, politics in a few cases. Uh, but I think that that market has been more limited than some pastors would like. And so the over the last few decades, the churches that have experienced the most growth um, have been those that have been more culturally conservative. Maybe they haven't engaged in, in direct partisanship from the, the pulpit, but they have uh, certainly fostered a, a culture that has leaned toward the political right. Yes. Well, I'm going to go – those are very engaging answers about this topic. I'm going to go ahead and pass it to Tim, who may have more questions on the recent article, and then Catherine, who uh, may have questions on two earlier pieces you've written in The Atlantic since we've had you on last. Tim? Okay. Uh, good morning, Professor. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Um, i, I got to ask about one group of people um, – I understand about, you know, uh, Southern church attendance declining and still people keeping the same conservative views despite that. What about voters down here who are totally non-religious, who have never attended church or or been religious? Uh, Do you find that even though it's still in the South, they tend to be more liberal than those who have left the church? They do tend to be more liberal than those who have left the church, although there's an interesting finding. uh, When I was looking at the the data uh, from the the 2018 uh, General Social Survey, I found that um, most of the people who who reported no church attendance uh, at or most of the people, rather, who, who reported no religious affiliation. So there's a, there's a much larger group of people who, who still claim to be Christian uh, but who don't go to church. But for those who, who have truly left Christianity in the sense that they don't, they don't even claim to be Christian, they identify as, as having no religion, they're completely secular, those people uh, in the South tend to have profiles that are, are very different from uh, the typical non-churchgoer. So first of all, they're a smaller group uh, than the larger group of, of people that just hardly ever or never go to church in the South. Uh, but they also uh, are unusually likely not to be originally from the South, and they do tend to be uh, much more politically liberal. So I think the way that I would interpret that finding, and it is a bit of interpretation that goes beyond the data, but the way that I would interpret this finding uh, is that I think, especially in rural areas of the South, there is a general Christian and now politically conservative culture that goes far beyond church and that's able to sustain itself even when people don't go to church. So your typical unchurched person in the rural South, unchurched white Southerner in the rural South, is someone who is not necessarily opposed to Christianity in general, though they may be opposed to institutional Christianity, but their, their belief system, and the, and the survey data bears this out for most people that still call themselves Christians but don't go to church, their, their belief system is actually heavily influenced by uh, traditional Christian theology of, of a sort. They, they mm-hmm. still have a high respect for the Bible. Uh, they may not be practicing every precept of Christianity, but there's, a, there's an association between God and country uh, that, that continues to push them toward the political right. On the other hand, a smaller group of people who simply leave 
Christianity altogether uh, are much more likely to go to the political left, but those people are more likely to to be in urban areas. And, and when you start digging into the data, you find that that uh, certainly not invariably, but but more commonly than than one might first suspect, um, these people have have moved around a bit. Uh, they're they're part of a of an urban professional uh, environment where where people perhaps don't remain rooted in their their uh, original communities of birth. Mm. So I live in a county, um, a rural county of less than 25,000. That was the traditional old school democratic county and uh, went in about 10 years from being a 60-40 democratic county to an 80-20 Republican county. Is Christian nationalism so strong in counties like this in the South that the rural South is lost to the Democrats for the foreseeable future? I think so. Uh, certainly efforts that politicians have made to try to to appeal to uh, the, the old-style Southern Democrats uh, and bring them into the contemporary Democratic Party have not been very successful. Uh, so I think there is a widespread perception uh, that the, the Democratic Party is, is perhaps not friendly to the perceived values of these places, uh, that it's, it's very difficult to find uh, a majority of, of people in, in a county that, such as the one you're describing who would vote Democratic at the presidential level today. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think... Christian nationalism is certainly a, a strong part of that. Uh, there may be other associated factors, but I, I do think that Christian nationalism, which is certainly present in many churches, but also extends beyond churches into a larger culture, is part of the story of the migration of, of these counties, this demographic group, into the Republican Party. Yeah. When I was a kid, pastors in the pulpit in this area of the country used to preach about separation of church and state. You don't hear that anymore. Is the separation of church and state a thing of the past in the South? Yes. uh, I think when they preached about the separation of church and state, which was perhaps common before uh, the late 1970s, Many Southern Baptists had fears of Catholic influence in politics. They also mm-hmm. believed that separation of church and state was a historic Baptist value, which it was. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think starting at the end of the 1970s, there was a widespread fear of what people at the time called secular humanism. And mm-hmm. then after preaching against secular humanism, many of these pastors and congregants adopted views of Christian nationalism, the, the myth that uh, America was founded as a Christian nation, it existed as a Christian nation for many decades, and then in, sometime in the late 20th century it lost its way because of secular forces that were trying to take over, and it's important for Christians to reclaim their nation for God. And so one could see the beginnings of that in the late 1970s. That has accelerated uh, in recent years. In the late 1970s, people didn't necessarily call it Christian nationalism, but as this has become so pervasive on the political right, that that term has been 
rightly used, I think, to describe this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Got one more question, uh, Professor, and then I'll send it over to Catherine. But uh, I got to get your take on this because I've scratched my head forever and a day thinking about it. But how did we get from 1976 an evangelical president, Jimmy Carter, to where evangelicals are now? How did that happen? Yeah, I think the the beginning of it started even during Carter's presidency. In 1976, an overwhelming number of, of evangelicals in both the North and the South believed that if you could have a born-again president, someone who shared their theological beliefs, someone who's committed to Christ, that it would solve many of the problems of the country. Evangelicals split their vote in 1976. Northern evangelicals were more likely to, to vote for Gerald Ford, who himself was a uh, a religious man of a, of a moderate sort, and Southern evangelicals were more likely to to vote for Jimmy Carter, one of one of their own. They thought a, a born again Southern Baptist deacon and Sunday school teacher. But as early as the late 1970s, some uh, evangelicals began to believe that maybe Jimmy Carter wasn't on their side. That the cultural forces that that disturbed them, forces such as second wave feminism. Uh, the gay rights movement in its early years, the uh, the rising abortion rate, the perceived uh, threats to the family, those things were not necessarily being solved during the, the Carter administration. And even more, some conservative white evangelicals believed that Carter was not on their side when it came to some of those issues. And so uh, – not all white evangelicals, but a significant number, about two-thirds, uh, who voted in the 1980 election turned against Carter and voted instead for Ronald Reagan. And so that was the beginning of a shift, but it was only the beginning. We've seen further developments in, in the 21st century. I think at, at the beginning of this political shift, the evangelicals who moved into the Republican Party were – disproportionately likely to be in suburban areas, in, in suburban churches, and they were linked with a, a what in retrospect seems more like a mainstream conservative Republican movement. Uh, in more recent years, in the last decade, rural white evangelicals have taken the lead in, in this political shift and often done so uh, contrary to the wishes of some of the, the older more established Christian right organizations, and and so the and they've shifted the Republican Party into a more uh, populist direction in ways that maybe have some continuities with the Reagan era, but also distinct breaks from it. And so the Republican Party today, while it has some uh, some continued elements of that original Reagan. Christian Right Coalition of 1980 uh, has also moved much further afield because of of pressures from below, I would argue, as as part of this populist Christian nationalist movement. Well, I thank you for that, sir. And with that, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Good morning, Professor. Thank you for being on with us this morning. Um, I have a million questions. (laughs) But the first and uh, and most to me, a most obvious question is, why have people stopped going to church? 
I think the answer is more complicated <laughs> uh, than a lot of people think. So some people clearly have walked out of church because they don't like the message. Uh, oftentimes they don't like the partisan message they, or they don't like the cultural message. Uh, and those people are very often likely to leave the political right uh, if they were ever part of it at all. But the mistake that I think a number of people have made is to think that, that that's the majority, that most people who've stopped going to church are people who, who disagree uh, with the Republican Party, maybe disagree with the church's stance on sexuality, maybe disagree with something else. And while there's a very real phenomenon, the, the findings that I'm seeing, both from my own analysis of the data and from the, the much more extensive data analysis that, that uh, some other social science researchers have published this year, indicates to me that actually the majority of people who stop going to church don't do so because of, of a single decision. That is, the, the last Sunday in church is not one in which they walk out and slam the door. It's rather that they become busy. Uh, maybe they're working on Sunday mornings, as so many people are. Maybe uh, they find that, that church just doesn't easily fit into their family life anymore or, or into um, other aspects. Maybe they they disliked the new pastor and couldn't find another church and just got tired of looking. I mean, there are so many, uh, so many possible reasons, but those reasons of course were always present to a degree. But I think in, in recent years, church has fit less easily into our, our very busy lives and COVID accelerated this COVID forced uh, nearly everyone uh, to, to quit, meeting in person, at least for a, a very short time and for, for a number of churches uh, e even longer, a, a matter of months, maybe even a year or more. And, and during that time, a number of people fell out of the habit. So these, these trends started before COVID, uh, but COVID accelerated them. And the, the collective result is that there are a lot of people who are not necessarily opposed to church, maybe even less opposed to Christianity, but they, for various reasons, are just not in church at the moment. And has this, is this trend, like for how, over how long has this trend been, you know, happening, uh, the decline in uh, church going? Yeah. I'm just curious well, church, because, go ahead. Yeah, so, so the, there was an initial decline in the 1960s. That, of course, predated what we're talking about here, but the, the highest rate of church attendance in the United States came in, in 1959 when about 70% of Americans uh, were churchgoers of one sort or another. But that, that declined in, in the 1960s. Uh, it plateaued in the 1970s and 1980s. It seemed that about 40% of Americans throughout the late 20th century were involved in church. And then the more recent decline seems to have, have started uh, – Sometime in the in the second decade of the 21st century, we could say sometime around 2014. Uh, it, it's hard to say that anything started that year. That that just tends to be um, there, there was a major uh, Pew Research funded survey of of uh, religious observance that took place that year, and, and so we have a good data point. Uh, but you know, there's no there's no reason to suspect that, that 2014 was a, was a pivotal year. It's just when we happen to measure things. And it does seem that since then we've seen uh, a marked 
decline in church attendance uh, in the United States. So, and we know that church attendance was, was still quite high in the 1990s. So I, I think safely we could say that sometime in the early 21st century, well after 9-11, uh, when church attendance was still pretty high in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, but, but sometime um, in, in the early 21st century, we started to see uh, a, a decline uh, in church attendance, and that seems to have uh, accelerated uh, with COVID. Yeah, you know, I, I find this really interesting because I feel like something that you said earlier um, about people moving, I feel like you know, since probably the late 50s and into the, you know, and, and forward, people have been more likely, at least this is just my, my anecdotal, I'm not, a, I'm not a data scientist, so even though I might sound like I play one on the radio. Um, I, just, I just think that, that since then we've seen a marked uh, uh, increase in people moving away from their uh, hometowns and moving for jobs or for education or for, you know, other reasons. And for me, I mean, personally, I was uh, raised in a um, Unitarian, uh, I mean, I come from a very liberal town, very liberal family. I was raised as a Unitarian, but we attended church regularly and participated in a lot of um, Unitarian activities and all that. But once I went away to college, I just didn't go anymore. And even when I moved back to my hometown for a while, I didn't attend anymore. And so I, I feel like that's like a, probably a key part of this. And I wonder if it, I mean, I've, you know, there's a, I'm sure there's tons of research on this, but if this is also like um, an a explanation for some of the, um, I don't even know how to say this, uh, experiencing, uh, people experiencing sort of, um, what, is, what am I trying to, well, I can't even, I can't even put it, it's in yeah. my head, but I can't, I, I just feel like that, that seems like a, it's like a disconnection from their roots, and it also, mm-hmm it exacerbates some of their other, um, you know, it gives, it gives them the opportunity to say, well, I'm not going to church anymore. Is this really, are those values that I embraced as a young person still valuable to me now that I'm not attending church? Does this change the way my outlook? Right. And I just wonder yeah. if that's, if that's part of it. I think um, it is. So for years, for decades, um, social science researchers have noted that, that people have been likely to not attend church a, as often during college and during uh, young adulthood, but then return to church once they, once they had children. So, so that was a, a phenomenon for the baby boomers, maybe the Gen Xers, uh, where they, they might have distanced themselves from church for a few years, but then as they were thinking about how do they want to raise their children, they're more likely to return to church. Uh, in more recent years, what we've noted is that uh, m- many people, uh, an increasing number of people are foregoing children altogether or waiting so late in life to have children, maybe their early 40s, that, they, that the habits that they've set 
uh, in young adulthood are are already uh, permanent enough that they're not as likely to return to church as they were before. And more recently, just in the last um, few years, uh, with research published this year, uh, especially in the the book The Great Dechurching, there's a new phenomenon that social science researchers had not noticed before that in conservative evangelical churches where people say they really value church, actually having a child sometimes prompts them to drop out of church just because of the demands of caring for this new baby. And then as the child grows older, all of the the sports routines and and, uh, other time commitments, it just makes it difficult to fit church into the schedule. And that's a very recent phenomenon, but but that seems to be happening as well. And so I I think, yes, the the moves, um, the transitions in life that people make, uh, as well as the uh, scheduling constraints that people have all combined to to make it perhaps less likely that people will attend church than it was in the 1950s when church was just an expected part of family life and, and most people were having uh, multiple kids and having them fairly early in their marriages. And so I, I think we're in a, a new position. But one other thing I wanted to mention based on your experience, while your experience is very common, there are a lot of people who have left um, – all sorts of churches, but especially liberal churches. What's interesting is that most of those people retain their political commitments. So my guess is for you and for many other people that you may have known from the Unitarian Youth Group who are not attending Unitarian churches today, my guess is that they actually retain a lot of their values, um, that they have not become Trump-supporting right-wing Republicans uh, wanting to, I would say that's uh, yeah, and instead they they actually act as good Unitarians even without going to the Unitarian Church, and that's been one of the problems, especially for liberal churches, is that so many people who grow up in the, that environment, while they appreciate many things about the church from when they were growing up, they they don't feel the need for church in their lives today to retain those those values, those political commitments. And because the initial wave of de-churching was disproportionately concentrated in liberal churches, we tended to think for a long time that people who left church would become good secular liberals. But what's now happening, especially in the rural South, is that when people leave conservative churches, they also retain those values, at least in the political sphere. Um, But those values are, of course, diametrically opposed to the values of people like yourself who left very different sorts of churches. Huh. That's really interesting. Okay. Now I'm going to completely change the subject and I want to talk about abortion, what we, no one ever wants to talk about, but how do you think this, these new, you know, the Dobbs decision and then all the states that have, um, you know, come down so hard on um, access to abortion particularly in the South, but really across the country and many, with few, with some exceptions. How do you think that impacts, you know, what are the religious implications of that? And do you think, I've often thought that, um, I've thought about this a lot, I've often thought that once uh, abortion was eliminated, or, or basically eliminate, not, not eliminated, but um, restricted so much that some of these um, 
strident uh, Christian anti-abortion um, people, you know, would sort of drop out of uh, politics because this was their goal. And once they received that, once they achieved that goal, they no longer were really politically active. They were one issue voters, and now they're now they've succeeded. Do you think there's any validity to that idea? I think that even for one-issue voters, and that there, ha- there are a number, um, I, according to public opinion polls, it seems like about 10% of the electorate um, are one-issue voters on the right when it comes to abortion. So certainly not the majority of voters by any stretch, but a sizable contingent. Those voters are not likely to drop out of politics anytime soon because they have not really achieved their goal. Their goal was not overturning Roe v. Wade. That was just to stop along the way. Uh, yeah. But abortion still remains legal in most parts of the country, not the, not much of the South. Uh, and there are, of course, parts of the Midwest, Mountain West, and Great Plains where abortion is illegal. But most people in the United States still live in a state where abortion is legal. And furthermore, because those states always have the majority of abortion providers, the impact on the abortion rate of the states that have have uh, made abortion illegal uh, is relatively minimal. Uh, immediately before Dobbs, I did a calculation that indicated that at most making abortion illegal in the states where abortion was likely to be illegal or restricted would, would only reduce the abortion rate by about 15% at most as kind of an upper limit. And, and that's been true. It's actually been less than 10% uh, of uh, abortions that seem to have been um, eliminated because of of the restrictive abortion laws. So while those laws certainly have made uh, abortion access uh, much more difficult for many people, uh, they have have not by any means um, made made abortion impossible to – made legal abortion impossible to access in the United States. So from the standpoint of one-issue voters on the right, uh, when it comes to the abortion issue, they they still believe that they have a long way to go. And I I think they're also living in fear that – if enough, uh, if, if there's enough of a of a liberal momentum in this country, that even the the modest gains they've made are, are going to be uh, overturned, which they will be in some states. I mean, they, for example, Ohio seems to be on track, according to public opinion polls, of of um, overturning its restrictive abortion law and, and protecting abortion in the state constitution uh, after this fall, uh, and that that will probably happen in in other areas as well. So that's. That's one um, thing to consider. The other thing to consider, I think, is that the Christian right was always larger than just the abortion issue. There were some people who were who were sympathetic to the Democratic Party and, and voted Republican only because of the abortion issue. Uh, some of those were progressive evangelical Protestants. Some of those were, were Catholics who had always been Democrats. Uh, so that's, the, those voters are out there. They're real, and, and some of them may well end up voting Democratic if they think that the Republican Party is, is not any more likely than the Democratic Party to to um, push for abortion restrictions at the national level, uh, and you know, there's there's a case to be made there. We'll see we'll see where the Re- Republican Party goes on the on the abortion issue. But certainly, um, Donald Trump and and some Republicans have have suggested that maybe further legislation on abortion is not necessarily needed. Uh, but that aside, I think the majority of people in the Christian right were motivated by 
by larger issues of Christian nationalism, larger cultural concerns. And those cultural concerns are very much there. And so at the end of my book, God's Own Party, published in 2010, I, I made a, a prediction that I think still applies, which is that as, the, as conservative evangelicals become more committed to the Republican Party, they will also become simultaneously more frustrated at their inability to change the cultural direction of this country. They will continue to perceive the cultural direction of this country as, as moving toward secularism, as moving toward uh, greater acceptance of the sort of things that they oppose, and that in turn will accelerate their political commitments even as those political commitments seem to be less effective. I think that's been true over the last decade, and I, I think it will continue to be true for the foreseeable future. Oh, that's really interesting. I have to, I have to think on that for a bit. Well, thank you very much. This was a really interesting conversation this morning, and uh, I really, I really appreciate your insight. And um, and and I pass it now to David for final questions. Thanks so much. Welcome. Yes. Well, Dr. Williams, we thank you for joining us. Sorry if we went a little longer than anticipated, but it's your fault for being so interesting and informative. Um, so before you list, leave our listeners, though, go ahead and uh, tell us or tell them where we can um, find more of your readings. We know about the Atlantic, but there's probably lots of other places, including social media. Yeah. Um, I People can find me on Twitter. I uh regularly write for Christianity Today, um, Anxious Bench, Patheos, uh, Current Magazine. Um, but I also have some books um, that you briefly mentioned, God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right, uh, Defenders of the Unborn, The Election of the Evangelical, Politics of the Cross. Uh, so, yes, uh, readers who want to, want to read more of my work uh, can certainly find it. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Yes, that was Dr. Daniel K. Williams of University of West Georgia, uh, one of our uh, experts on religion and politics. Always great to have him on the show, especially when he writes a, a new piece that gets so much attention, like the latest one did in the Atlantic. Um, but we got just a few more minutes because we're going to try to, you know, keep this thing about uh, an hour. So we're going to start a topic that we're not going to finish, but it's okay because we know. This topic may not be finished for quite a while. Um, <laughs> that would be – y'all already know what I'm talking about. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, um, we knew that his hold on the speakership was quite tenuous. And he had plugged along for, goodness, almost a, you know what most of this year without too much drama. But now that the budget negotiations are coming to a head, um, Matt Gates, shocker that he's the one that wanted to be – the proverbial problem in the punch bowl, um, he steps up and wants to um, have a vote on removing Kevin McCarthy. Apparently at this point he doesn't have um, as much support as he needs, but it looks like he could be gaining that when other folks get back from Colorado and get thrown out of Beetlejuice, um, and then they pick up <laughs> steam as we get closer to those budget negotiations, um, which is a whole other problem. I thought uh, – Representative Nastasia Cortez put the problem quite well in her tweet. I won't try to read that or paraphrase that here or look it up, but she kind of put all the um, 
you know, the problem into, I guess, now 280 characters. Um, X gives you our Twitter. Um, Tim, what is your thoughts on the conundrum that uh, Kevin McCarthy's facing in the near future? Well, the 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 very short version of it is something that would everyone would understand, and that is he made his bed with this bunch, and now he has to lay in it and deal with them. Uh, the but the, but this started back in May, you know, when they got mad at him because he made a deal with the White House about the debt, and now they they're just. Uh, Stopping their feet down, they're saying cut $120 billion from the budget or we're not going to pass any budget. And over on the other side in the Senate, they're going ahead and passing spending bills, uh, waiting on the the House who who has to do the appropriations to, to get going. Um, and so we're coming to the House needing to pass the spending bill, and it's coming up in a hurry, or the government may shut down on October the 1st. And instead of doing that, here we are talking about impeaching the president, and we got Matt Gates and guys and, and some of his ilk talking about the old uh, motion to vacate, which would bring a vote to the full house on keeping or removing the speaker, and of course, as we know, that brought a profanity-laced tirade from the speaker in a meeting with his caucus. All of this is happening in a hurry, uh, and he's saying, you know, he's putting his foot down, saying they're going to stay in session until they pass the spending bill. So. Um, here here we go, guys. It's uh, a lot of stuff going to happen in a hurry, and much of it does not sound good. Think about this, guys. Can you imagine what he would be replaced with if he's removed? I, I've been thinking about that a lot. <laughs> well, talk to me about it, Catherine. <laughs> I can't even imagine how – I can't even imagine. And it's just so – um, it's just so disappointing, right, to see to see these people, these Republicans, you know, focusing on um, these relatively unimportant matters while the budget is in the is in the, in the while well, we're hanging on the on you know passing a budget and then all the other things that we need to. To think about that we haven't, you know, even considered, you know, whether it's health care, climate change, or um, criminal justice reform. I mean, there's so many things that our government needs to be addressing, and we're, you know, bickering among our, they're bickering among themselves about these things. It's just very disappointing, and 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 it's no wonder that people get frustrated with government and. Feel like their votes don't matter when these when this is the state that we're in. It's very it's very discouraging to me. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we've started off the show talking about Utah politics, and there's a Utah angle in this. Apparently, one of the you know people that's a more of an ardent supporter of Kevin McCarthy, a representative from Utah, um, he is resigning the House. They'll spill his um, election 
in November, but in that, you know, roughly two, well, I guess he might not even be, uh, you know, then sworn, that person might not be sworn in, um, his, that person's placement right off. And so there's going to be like a two-plus month window where he's another vote down. And I, I just don't know what will happen. I could see a situation where if they vacate him, we may go without a speaker for a period of days, if not longer, because you've got to remember there's a, there's a set of folks like Mike Gallagher from New York and others on you know, middle end, I guess we'll call it, middle end of the Republican caucus that either A, just wouldn't agree with what their replacement would be, or B, um, knows that that person would create an environment in which they can't be reelected. Um, and so you may lose votes there that people won't vote to replace with some outlandish figure. Let's just say Matt Gates, because I'm sure that's his, that's his um, you know, dream scenario is he gets to take over. Um, but, but so I, I don't know what the fix is going to be for them. Um, and I am kind of interested in one of his most ardent um, supporters who's actually politically much more with the ilk of his detractors, Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia. I wonder if she's going to come out and make any kind of statement because to me this is kind of a lose-lose for her because she fits ideologically with Gates and Boebert and some of those other folks, but then she's decided she wants to support Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and then I guess even more important is Donald Trump going to weigh in on this matter or the other presidential candidates. And so all of this may flesh itself out during the week. And I have a feeling we'll talk about this topic very possibly next week and maybe talking about this topic uh, off and on for the rest of 2023. But in, um, until next week, when we have Lowell Feld from Virginia coming back on to talk about the Virginia elections, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good day, everybody. Good morning, folks. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity?